0: You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. It's been more than seven months since the novel coronavirus arrived here in Michigan. And during that time, what we know about the virus has changed dramatically. And our understanding continues to change rapidly each day. We're also now hearing more and more about the race to develop a vaccine for the coronavirus. Throughout the pandemic, we've been regularly turning to Wayne State University medical researcher Dr. Paul Kilgore to give us the most reliable and trustworthy information on these subjects. And he joins us again now to update our understanding of COVID-19. Dr. Paul Kilgore, welcome back to Detroit Today.
1: Good morning, Stephen. Great to be here with you. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So let's start with some of the biggest ways that our understanding of the virus has changed in recent weeks. Where are we with coronavirus? Its effect on our lives and the prospect for a future where maybe we can live with it or defeat it.
1: Mm-hmm. Great, great question. So I think there's a couple things to highlight for listeners today. One is that we have a better understanding of the pathology uh, that's caused by the virus. So what that means is that we have more information about how to treat it better. So we're getting better at treating it, uh, which means that people will survive the infection uh, better than perhaps back in the early portion of the pandemic. Mm. The the second is that we now understand also some ways in which people may be at higher risk for the disease. So we can advise patients and provide information that will help them prevent uh, infection, actually, and, and actually Um, stay well and be healthy. And I'll talk more about that. And then the third thing is that we have some information about evolution of the virus worldwide uh, that tells us how it causes infection and how it's moving geographically. And that's been important information to guide how we might use future therapies and vaccines.
0: Yeah. Um, So I'm really worried about the return of school this fall, both at the K-12 level and at the higher ed level, uh, you you have a lot of people getting sick. You have a lot of people in quarantine on college campuses. Um, there are a lot of people who say they don't think that the science supports the idea of keeping kids out of school. But what we're seeing is that sending them to school is still taking a pretty, pretty big risk. Give us an idea of what the science actually says about what we should be doing with school.
1: So I think there's a couple important things to point out. One is that we know we can actually reduce our exposure and transmission using those things that were talked about early in the pandemic. So that includes really great hand hygiene. That includes face covering, face mask. And it also includes social distancing to reduce the likelihood that the virus will make it uh, to our nasopharyngeal spaces and mucosa. Those activities, when implemented in a educational setting, are also going to be important to reduce the potential exposure to the virus. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to that, there's other important things that we we know can be helpful, and that is um, taking care of our own health. So making sure that we as adults and uh, older adults and uh, people at risk understand that we need to take care of our normal health conditions. So that means making sure that we get a checkup. That means taking care of our blood pressure. That means getting a checkup, making sure that our diabetes is under control. And then also making sure that we get simple things done like a routine laboratory check for vitamin D levels. And also making sure that we get influenza vaccination this fall because we know right now that influenza will be circulating and it will be circulating throughout the winter and reducing our exposure to the virus. Influenza is going to be important. The face mask Mm -hmm. and other hygiene measures will also help reduce the risk of influenza and that will help reduce potential severity of COVID-19 if we do get exposed to COVID-19.
0: Are we looking at a likely resurgence of the of the disease because of what's going on now with people going back to to more intimate settings and interactions. I mean, what we're seeing on in East Lansing and Ann Arbor, I think uh, is is starting to concern people about the possibility for spread. Should we be should we be preparing ourselves for something a little later this fall or early in the winter?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think uh, caution is the key word right now. And, you know, it it always occurs that uh, viral respiratory diseases um, see a peak. Many many of them actually peak in the cooler winter months uh, when humidity is lower as well. And that's an important idea that will help reinforce the need for using a face mask, hand hygiene, the social distancing as well. We know, for example, coronaviruses, adenoviruses, RSV, influenza viruses all tend to peak in the cooler winter months. So we can anticipate something uh, of that nature happening again this year as well. How big of a peak we might see with COVID-19 specifically and the SARS-CoV-2 remains to be seen, but I think we can anticipate that this could definitely happen. Mm.
0: I'm talking with Dr. Paul Kilgore. He's the associate professor and director of research at Wayne State University College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. We're talking about where we are with COVID-19, where we are with the idea of a vaccine for COVID-19, and the way that the world is kind of going back to normal right now, whether that risks another resurgence of the disease we're also talking about the things that we understand about covid-19 now that we didn't maybe just a few weeks ago and what the way that affects the the things that we do or don't do or plan to do if you want to join the conversation give us a call and tell us what questions you have about covid-19 and the virus that causes it are you concerned about another big surge of cases here in Michigan and what do you think might cause That surge. Also, what do you think of the response locally and at the state level to COVID-19? Do you think that uh, elected officials are doing what they should be doing? Or are there things that you think are being left out that we ought to be considering? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter. And hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you in that way. Uh, Dr. Kilgore, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, actually to, to start the conversation, about what we've learned about treating COVID-19. Uh, the, the, the idea of treatment along with the possibility of a vaccine, I think, is the sort of you know bright light in, in, in the future for, for us. Uh, but, but talk about the, the ways in which that changes the mortality picture, uh, the, the, the fact that, that, that we are more knowledgeable about the effects of this disease and where it comes from, and therefore we're able to stop people from dying from it. That seems to me to be a dramatic step forward.
1: You're absolutely right, Stephen. In fact, um, there's a couple of things that listeners may have heard of that I'll I'll just mention real quickly. One is that we know when individuals develop severe COVID-19 disease and they experience respiratory distress, even respiratory failure, and then they become uh, patients in the ICU, one of the things that we know does help is steroids, uh, systemic steroids. And one of the things that this can do is actually reduce the impact of what you've heard is called the cytokine storm and that's really important because it means that we can buy time for the individual to help their immune system uh, respond to the viral infection and we can support their breathing uh, as they recover through the most severe uh, stages of the disease. We also know that the antiviral remdesivir does have some impact on uh, recovery time and reducing severity and duration of symptoms, so that's an important tool uh, going forward as well. And we also know that when we talk about reducing risk, um, we know now that individuals who develop severe disease um, typically have underlying risk factors, underlying medical conditions, and to the extent that we can prevent these or reduce their impact, um, that can improve survival as well. So things like obesity, diabetes, and smoking, cigarette smoking, will be important things to address, even as we do the measures that we know will prevent exposure, like face mask, hand hygiene, and social distancing. Mm.
0: Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. Let's go to Jean in Oakland County. Jean, welcome to the show.
1: Good morning. Hi. Uh, my question is about testing. I believe that I heard on I think CNN the other night Cuomo was basically saying that there's like different kinds of testing. I mean, you have the rapid testing where you can find out right away. Um, He also said that there's sometimes you might test positive, but your viral load is so low that, um, you know, you're not contagious and, you know, you're asymptomatic and you can go Mm -hmm. about your life. I was, you know, I'm curious about that. I would love to see, you know, rapid testing coming so that our teachers and students can feel Mm -hmm. a lot safer in school. And if what he said is correct, um, you know, if you test a student and they test positive, if you know what kind of viral load they have, you know, you may not have to shut down your whole school because somebody tested positive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Gene, great question. I uh, really appreciate the call. Dr. Kilgore, what's the answer?
1: So there's a couple of things, I think, uh, for Gene and other folks to know. One is that we do have the diagnostic test we call it the RT-PCR test. Uh, This is a test that's done on nasal swabs or nasopharyngeal swabs. This is a very important test. That gives us the diagnostic result that we're looking for in terms of understanding if someone's infected with the virus. Uh, We also know that there are these newer viral load tests um, that can be helpful. They're not as widespread available as uh, we would like them to be. Uh, We anticipate that in the next coming months there will be more widespread availability of those tests. The other thing to know is that RT-PCR tests, um, as in the form of the rapid diagnostics that we know are in the Abbott test, for example, that we've used in Detroit Health Department, uh, that's a test that can give a result very quickly within 10 to 15 minutes. And so the turnaround time for some of the diagnostic tests, the RT-PCR tests, is much shorter than it was several months ago, and that's good news for the situations where we know we want to identify individuals that may be infected or exposed, and then also uh, institute control measures as quickly as possible to reduce spread. Mm -hmm. So the RT-PCR test is a very, very good test that uh, we would like more people to be aware of. And uh, having that test more widespread available would be very important. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I, I did worry quite a bit when colleges, college campuses reopened and didn't have widely available testing for students and faculty and staff. I mean, they, they're doing some of that. But it does seem to me that that even even once we get a vaccine – this idea of testing and widely available testing is still going to be pretty important. And I feel like it's one of the places that we're, we're failing, I guess, uh, a little more than other, uh,
1: other areas. You're absolutely right, Stephen. I think one of the things that I wanted to underscore for listeners today is that even as we wait for the vaccine to become available, and I have to say that there's no guarantee that we're going to have a vaccine available for the general public in 2020. It could happen, uh, but it's really too early to tell, and the phase three trials are underway right now as we speak, but those results, uh, when they come available, um, it's, it's really unclear when we're gonna have those results in hand. So, in the meantime, one of the things I think it's important for people to know is that if they do develop COVID-19 symptoms, so that means fever, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, and other signs and symptoms of COVID-19 that we've heard about, it's very important that people access testing as quickly as possible in that situation. Mm-hmm. The other message, of course, is that people who are out and about, uh, they could be at work, uh, they could be going to a store or a restaurant or in school, the face covering, the face mask usage, the hand hygiene uh, with hand gel and hand washing with soap, as well as social distancing are still going to be very important measures uh, for the remainder of this year and I think well into 2021. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I I want to talk about vaccine and where we are with that. You you say there's no guarantee that we'll have one by the end of 2020. I keep saying there's no guarantee that we'll have one at all. I mean, there are so many things, uh, diseases that we live with, that we don't have actual vaccines for. But but catch us up on this rush to develop a vaccine, how that's going. Is it working uh, the way that, that that we're doing it? And is this something that, that you have confidence that will be achieved?
1: So that's a great question. Back, uh, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago, when we were doing vaccine research, uh, developing a vaccine would take anywhere from 10 to 15 years. Wow, The work that took place on the Ebola vaccine, actually accelerated vaccine development with newer technologies, uh, both for developing the vaccine and for conducting the clinical trials safely. In the current setting, for the Moderna vaccine, for example, or Pfizer vaccines and the other vaccine trials that are going on, we are using electronic data capture, electronic technologies to enroll patients. And the vaccine constructs, the actual vaccines themselves, the technology to create these and develop them and test them has greatly improved. And the latest technology that you, I'm sure, have heard of is the mRNA vaccine technology. It's actually not new. It's been around for about 10 to 15 years in development in the laboratory. And Moderna had been working on this technology along with other companies uh, for a long time. In fact, before COVID-19 broke out, they were working on other vaccine uh, agents. So vaccines for influenza, for example, or CMV, uh, Zika, and human metanumovirus were in the process, but they pivoted very quickly to COVID-19. So in 2020, the vaccine trials, these phase three trials that you've heard about, um, have accelerated um, in part because our technology has improved greatly in both doing the trials and designing the vaccines themselves.
0: Hmm. Hmm. And if we get to the point of vaccine, there's still going to be this question of who gets it and how effective it is. And I mean, I think a lot for a lot of people, there's kind of this thought that that's the end line once we get to the, the stage of a vaccine that is that is publicly available. But really, it's just another iteration in the process here and, and this is going to be with us for, for some time.
1: Absolutely right. In fact, I would say that when we get a licensed and recommended vaccine, that's really the beginning, uh, because what we're talking about is vaccinating millions, uh, perhaps billions of people around the world. Mm -hmm. And while there are vaccine manufacturers that are ramping up quickly to produce millions, hundreds of millions of doses, the challenge is actually delivering the vaccine, administering the vaccine and getting education out uh, two individuals that helps them understand how the vaccine works, what the safety of the vaccine is, and what they can expect after they're vaccinated.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also, quickly, we've got about two minutes left, but I want to get you to address this tension between, I guess, politics and science. Uh, CDC Director Robert Redfield testified in Congress this week and said he might even go so far as to say that this face mask that he was holding is more guaranteed to protect against COVID than when he takes a vaccine. Of course, the president said he didn't agree with that. Uh, the, there is this constant back and forth about who's right and, and who, should be, who should be trusted as a scientist. I guess I, I'm curious at your personal reaction to that
1: argument. So my thought around this is that actually both are very, very important. And the best analogy I can give you right now is with human papillomavirus and and prevention of cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. One thing we know is that pap smears are very important to prevent cervical cancer. The HPV vaccine is also very important to prevent cervical cancer. So doing those both for women is very, very important and also for young men to prevent transmission of HPV and other cancers. So when we talk about prevention of COVID-19, we're talking about several interventions that we know will work. Um, We know right now that face masks will reduce transmission, hand hygiene, social distancing are important. The vaccine, no doubt, will be important if it becomes available. It will not be the be-all, end-all. It won't be a panacea or solution that will um, solve our problems forever. Um, But it's going to be very, very helpful, no doubt, going forward and may help also improve the way that we can open uh, work, uh, restaurants, and other venues that are important for maintaining economic uh, action and power. Yeah.
0: Okay, Dr. Paul Kilgore, it is always great to have you and your expertise here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you very much for being with us.
1: Thank you, Stephen. Really appreciate it.
0: Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. I will be back on Monday, and I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.